0: Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli.
2: I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast.
3: Hello folks and welcome along to our midweek tennis podcast, just three days since we were last with you but uh, an ATP and WTA 1000 event has kicked off in earnest since then. Uh, this morning the Mutua Madrid Open started as I look at my live scores app. Suddenly Alina Svitolina, Kiki Burtons, Angelique Kerber and Marketa Vondrousova are playing tennis. It's sort of relentless at the moment isn't it David?
1: It's it's not not a bad slate for a first day, but an event starting on a Thursday will never quite work for me, I don't think. I, I just feel a bit weird about it, especially when there are two other events going mm. on already that are well into the kind of... They're about to go into the quarterfinals, aren't they, tomorrow? And uh, at the same time... The women's draw on in Madrid is so strong and so interesting. I'm I'm also drawn to it. It just happens to be I, I went round the courts a little bit and I saw a bit of Kerber and a bit of Svisilina and then I thought, Oh, I'll go and have a look at Ons Jabur and all I got was uh, an orange tarpaulin with rain splattering it. And I could watch that live for as many hours as I like. So I decided to talk to you two instead. <laughs>
3: I don't like it. And it happens increasingly now with these sort of extended 1000 events. I don't like it when the men's and the women's is sort of out of sync. I understand why that happens. Um, and, you know, I'm, I am just thankful that the men's and women's events are happening concurrently. I love a combined event, but I I wish it would just all be con- coordinated and kick off at the same time with a big fanfare and a coordinated order of play. But alas, it's this slightly sort of bitty start, um, not not helped by the rain sloshing down in Madrid. Uh, Matt, how are you doing?
2: I'm very well, thank you. Yes, and I agree with what you're saying. It, it sort of works, these longer events during Indian Wells and Miami, when all the men and women are starting at the same time midweek. This staggered start in Madrid, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, but... Thankfully, as David said, the round one matches on the women's draw are incredible. I was, I was trying to tweet a few highlights the other day and ended up practically tweeting the whole thing <laughs> because every round is just so, so good and feels so significant to the potential outcome of the tournament as well.
3: Mm, yeah, I'm going to whiz you through pretty much the whole <laughs> the whole round one draw, certainly the highlights of which there are many. This week's or today's show, this midweek show, um, is going to be sort of half Q&A and half sort of a roundup of the the bitty news stories that we've had since our last podcast. There's, there's enough news that we don't want to neglect it, um, but there's not quite enough news and significant matches to cover a whole podcast. So we're going to treat you to some Q&A uh, some Q&A it's that's, that's not the correct the the correct uh, um none of that was correct we're going to treat you to some questions and answers uh guest edited by it's like what man-
1: managers say isn't it when they just start yeah. abbreviating every oh, other bloody word and I, uh, and I then I, I'm then googling the next 10 minutes trying to make sure I know what's been going on before I reply and make a complete idiot myself
3: it's all I must apologize for all of that to Eli Cronenberg who's our guest editor for this week's uh episode or today's episode um um, and he has curated our questions and not our answers. We have to curate our own answers, which I found quite hard reading through them because he's really, they're they're good, hard hitting questions, and we're all going to be quite on the spot. I think. I oh, know. Um, I'm, I'm
1: not used to having to do prep. <laughs>
3: yeah, I I thought I could I can just just give my thoughts in the moment, <laughs> just, whatever just pops out. It. <laughs> um, and I read through them, I thought, oh, I'd, I'd better start having some thoughts in advance. Uh, so thank you, Eli, for that. We'll get on to it in, in a moment. Uh, we'll start, though, because we've teased you with Madrid news and uh, the women's Madrid draw. Here are some highlights of round one matches in Madrid. Ash Barty versus Shelby Rogers. Angelique Kerber versus, versus Marquetta von That match is currently... Underway. In fact, they're in a first-set tie-break, so that one isn't disappointing at the moment. Uh, Yulia oh, Putin- Saver versus Johanna Konta. Simeona Halep versus Sara Saribas-Tormo. Jessica Pagula versus Sarana Castella. Uh Carolina Plushkova against Coco Goff. Svetlana Kuznetsova against what? Elena Ostapenko. Jennifer Brady against Venus Williams. Amanda Anisimova versus Maria Sakkari. And Naomi Osaka versus Misaki Doi. When's all this on? (laughs) Well, some of it's on now, David. Those are first rounds. You know, sometimes we read out sort of projected Mm. third round matches and think, oh, my God, how can these names be meeting so early in the draw? Those are first rounds. That
1: really is... Startling. I, I know Matt had listed them all in a single tweet, but my, my mind started going off in tangents when I was about three rows down. So, yes, a few of those came as a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, I'd sort of seen also some of the potential third-round matches and the fact that Barty could play Svantec, so the two last French Open champions oh. facing each other in round three. I mean, that really got my attention so I kind of missed all those others that you've just mentioned. Now I've got Kerberu against von Droshevon. As we speak, I'm not going to be able to concentrate on the q and I'm going to have to turn this off.
2: <laughs> just on Madrid, can I get a, give a little nod to the social media team in Madrid who've, who've produced these nice little videos with the top players where they have to answer a series of questions about things they would like to do with other top players? kind of basic stuff like who would you go dancing with who would you sit next to on a trip to Australia that kind of thing and Naomi Osaka's I watched this morning and she'd made all her choices and her last question her last option was who would you call on a bad day and the last available player to her was Karolina Pliskova (laughs) and she suddenly decided she needed to change all of her answers because she didn't want to call Pliskova on a bad day (laughs) So she started rearranging everything and I just <laughs> thought it was
3: fabulous.
2: <laughs> who <laughs> Who did she end up with?
3: Who did she end up calling on a bad day? Uh,
2: Petra Kvitova, I think.
3: Oh, yes. Um,
2: who she'd originally put down as, who would you want to cook you a meal?
3: Did, did Pliskova end up doing the cooking? I think
2: Pliska ended up doing the cooking and Osaka was like, I think she's a good cook.
3: <laughs> <laughs> don't really care so long as I don't have to call her on a bad day. <laughs> Oh, that's so great! I love that they uh, they do a good job, don't they? The um, the the it's a very well organized tournament in Madrid. I I full disclosure, I don't love that venue. It's not the most charming of venues. I think most people that have been there will tell you that it's a very it's a very functional large venue. I I'm very thankful that it's it's got multiple roofs, but it doesn't it doesn't inspire poetry does it the uh, the magic box the kaya magica but they do a fantastic job of or- organizing that tournament and they people do try are lovely, and kind they? of the, the think outside are... the box and, yeah they really are
1: I, I, I always remember being feeling really looked after you know
3: yeah yeah absolutely the and they they really embrace the media and the press i think and have a have a good respect for them and obviously that's that's always appreciated from our perspective i mean Let's just take a moment to enjoy and praise B for the fact that the Madrid Open this year is not a um gaming event oh God. because bless <laughs> bless them for doing that last year and for 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 trying to do something and trying to get themselves into people's consciousness i'm I'm not criticising for that that at all, but that was a lockdown low point, wasn't it. <laughs> That was a real, like, what has happened to the world that we're watching this. I was um, I was looking at, we were t- trying to
1: get ourselves accredited yesterday because we completely forgot. So I'm going through the old emails and I put in Madrid just as, in the search and it came up with 2020 virtual Madrid open. And I thought, God, <laughs> dear. Don't I'd, take I, I, me I'd back.
2: Clearly blanked that out. Isn't... Kiki Burton's the defending champion from both events. <laughs> didn't she win Madrid Proper that, Madrid 2019? No, no, I'm gonna, and gonna put that line into one.
3: my uh, into my opener on Sunday on Prime. We'll check that. it, make sure it's correct.
1: Are you telling me that you didn't save that for Matt's Stat in the newsletter <laughs> next week?
3: Um who's the men's defending champion i recall andy murray yeah, losing it's... in the final to someone or certainly losing at a critical stage i
2: thought murray might have won but didn't they think there was some sort of jinx in the game and he handed victory to someone else because he thought it was unfair i think that might have oh, happened
3: gosh. schwartzman
2: no i don't know i'm just naming i feel like david i
3: feel like david gavi goffin was involved at the latter stages of the virtual madrid open could be. Oh, happy, happy memories for David. Anyway, those days are firmly behind us. Let there never be a virtual anything ever again. Um, so, yeah, actual tennis is happening. And thank goodness they have got roofs because those outdoor courts look thoroughly miserable. Uh, so those are the round one highlights on the women's side. The men's draw takes place tomorrow, Friday evening. Um, from a very self-respect, selfish perspective, not to harp on about this, but when I'm broadcasting on the tournament and having to keep track of the what round the men's and the women's are at when they're so staggered and fragmented, it's so difficult. You, I like to have this really sort of binary thing in my mind. I, I see a draw sheet and I see, right, we're at the round three stage and that just sort of imprints on my brain, whereas this is bitty and confusing. And uh, yeah, apologies in advance for anyone watching prime video from Sunday onwards thinking, well, she's got that wrong. (laughs) It is not the quarterfinal. It's the second round, Catherine. Um, In terms of other Madrid news, though, Djokovic is out. I don't think it's any huge surprise given what he said following his loss uh, in Serbia at the Belgrade Open last week. He said uh, he couldn't face... Thinking about Madrid, really, at the time he was put on the spot and asked if he intended to play, and he said he was finding making plans exhausting in that moment, and reiterated his emphasis on the Grand Slams. So he'll play Rome uh, and possibly Belgrade too um, in the lead up to Roland Garros. Which, yeah, it's no great surprise, but it's it's disappointing for for the Madrid Open, isn't it?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, it is. I think. Maybe a a small consideration in this is the current ranking system means that he can skip Madrid and still maintain 50% of his ranking points that he won in 2019 when he won the title. So he'll still have 500 points from Madrid on his ranking, which I don't think would be the main factor in this decision, but it it certainly makes it easier for him to skip Madrid. Um, And is is Belgrade to the the week before the French Open, directly the week before, which is, is something Djokovic doesn't do very often. Well, lots of the top players don't do it, play the week before a Grand Slam. I think I did read that he's never won a Grand Slam when he's played the week before. Um, but obviously, the circumstances are quite different. I think if he would played the week before in the past, it's probably because he's looking for form, looking to maybe recover some fitness or something, or maybe back when he was much younger, Uh, So there's probably not too much to read into that. But it is interesting scheduling wise that he's sort of straying from what he usually does.
3: Mm. And look, there's probably enough uncertainty about that. It's not even certain that he would be able to play the Belgrade Open. I mean, France is in a pretty strict lockdown at the moment. Case numbers have been... On the rise. The reason they moved the tournament, the French Open, back um, was to try and give themselves the best chance of having a crowd in because uh, the country was going into lockdown at the time. So, if any kind of quarantine uh, is required for the players prior to to actually starting the event, um, then then playing elsewhere out of the country the week before is not going to be possible. Um, I hope for the for Belgrade 2's sake, that that isn't the case. But, um, yeah, we are still in, still in uncertain times. Everyone loves a reminder of that, don't they? <laughs> Lest you get ahead of yourselves and think things are getting back to normal. No, 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 there is still a pandemic. Um, Esteril and Munich have been uh, getting underway in earnest or are very much well underway, uh, those two men's events taking place this week. My favourite thing that's happened is that David's... Predictions pick lost uh, minutes after the newsletter went out. David, would that be an accurate um, unit of time to use? Well,
1: yeah, about one hundred and eighty minutes. But <laughs> you know, if you want to, if you want to talk about it like that in your uncharitable manner, <laughs> um, yeah. Poor old Sebastian Corda, who who uh, was lumbered oh, he, he's with my Sebastian,
3: pick. Now he's lost. When when you were picking him, it was all Seb. Sebi, I'll, I'll go think. with I'll go with I'll go with Seb Corder. He he's yeah. my man. I've seen him well, play once. I was very impressed. I mean, I only
1: went with him because you would nicked mine.
3: You can't <laughs> lay claim to Casper Rude throughout the clay court season. Well, I did even do when weeks you don't ago. actually pick him.
1: Matt's got the evidence. <laughs> we all know I'm a I'm a Casper Rude person,
2: and I've just had him taken. Mm. So I ended up with Corder. The worst thing about this week is. Wood's going to win the title. Catherine's going to get actual points, and David's going to get, you know, kudos.
3: I yeah. I dispute that last point, Matt. We'll, we'll cross <laughs> that. Map. We'll cross the kudos bridge when we come to it. <laughs> I say. Then, uh, other than David's humiliation, has anything else notable happened so far this week in Estoril or Munich, or are we waiting for drama to unfurl over the weekend?
2: One thing that has caught my eye is a couple of. Decent wins for Marin Cilic and Kevin Anderson, who are two players who have really not been on the radar for quite some time. Have been struggling with form and fitness. And Anderson beat Francis TfO and Marin Cilic beat Carlos Alcaraz. And I think he's actually backed that win up and is now into the quarterfinals. So, look, I, do, I don't think they're major players really in the men's game anymore. I'd be surprised if they. If they reach the heights they've already reached in the sport, it does feel like they're on the way out. But it's nice for, it's nice to see them doing better and having some good results.
3: I discovered yesterday along with that Alcaraz win, Matt, that there is a Twitter account called Did Marin Chilich win today? And it just tweets oh, no. either yes or no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh Marin Marin doesn't deserve this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I agree. Though it's nice to see him playing better. It is because he—he he, I found him really tough to watch the last few months because I, I like Maren Cilic as a, as a person, and a, and he's been a really really good player for a long time. And you, I don't want to see his career peter out and him to be getting beatings in in matches. One after another, week after week, and just not look anything like the player we remember. I hate it when that happens to players. I remember it happening to Michael Chang a lot at the end of his career, and Leighton Hewitt a lot in his singles career. You know, and um, I'd rather if that happens that they pull the cord really and just leave and, and draw a line and say, "Okay, moving on." Had a great career, but he's he's really dug his heels in. I watched that Alcaraz match, and he he was the, the boss. For for the most part in it and yeah he, he it's I'd I'd quite like to talk to him about it I'd imagine his view is you know he's got enough experience to just build some blocks and some foundation for maybe a run at things again you know in the in the in the months to come
3: mm, could be a could be an exciting time for the did Marin Cilic win today Twitter account um, so <laughs> how many wins probably. in a
2: row do you, does Cilic need to have for that account to be shut down.
3: I don't know, Matt. No. I, I believe, I'm a, I'm a very late adopter of this account, but I believe it's been going for quite some time. Oh God. So it's it's weathered some storms, put it that way. Um, before before we move on to our, our Q&A portion of the podcast, uh, probably the, the biggest waves in tennis have been created this week by not matches, but by headlines coming out of Wimbledon, uh, announcing that from 2022, so next year... Um, Middle Sunday will be no more. It'll be a normal 14-day play right the way through tournament. Uh, They also had some news on uh, slightly different things for the 2021 edition of the tournament. No Hawkeye Live this year, and uh, there will be um, quite a strict bubble for the for the players, um, and around about, uh, is it twenty five percent capacity crowds? Possibly, uh, with that increasing throughout the tournament as they as they gather information and, and confidence, hopefully about about how it's going having crowds in, and there will be fines of twenty thousand pounds for players, entourage members, uh, staff, anybody violating the very strict bubble that they will have in place um so that'll be Wimbledon this year and next year what do we think first of all middle Sunday what do we think about that there's there's kind of two things at play here aren't there there's the very selfish perspective of we've all lost our lovely day off um and then there's also the the bigger picture perspective how do how do the two sides of your brain match react to this piece of news
2: yeah it's very interesting What a big response it provoked. I think people do feel very strongly one way or the other. Um, I'm, I'm trying to see it from some different perspectives. I think when I was growing up a tennis fan, I hated Middle Sunday because it felt like the tournament lost its momentum and Sunday was a day when I could watch the tennis and it wasn't on. On the other hand, you did get a bit of a payoff with... The second Monday, which was this incredibly special day of tennis. I think now that I've started working at Wimbledon and covering Wimbledon, I feel the complete opposite. And I, as you said, quite selfishly enjoy Middle Sunday. It's a nice sort of oasis of calm in a very busy fortnight. And yet, the second Monday I've come to think is too busy, and matches, which are very significant matches, get lost in that schedule and there are big problems about the way the women's matches have been shunted on the second Monday in comparison to the men's matches on those main courts. So ultimately I do think it's a good decision. Um, I think one of the premium tennis events not playing on a weekend was an example of a, of a tennis shooting itself in the foot moment uh, when more people can go, more people can watch. I think you have to be playing at the weekend. I think there's even an argument that the French Open gets it right, having that tournament spread across three weekends. Um, so ultimately, I think I think it is the right decision for that reason.
3: Well, on that point, Matt, the the French Open point, I, my eye was caught by a point that Ben Rothenberg was making on Twitter this week. He said, "I love the idea of a Grand Slam having a rest day, but it shouldn't fall on a weekend." Tennis already does enough to make the sport hard for folks to watch without taking off the days when people are actually free to watch. While we're here, re slam scheduling, no major sporting event should be starting on a Monday morning. Start on the weekend or a Friday night and have as few matches during the week- weekday work day as possible. Tennis can't afford just to be for the leisure classes. And I honestly, I hadn't thought of that before. It's so I'm so um institutionalized in tennis that Grand slams start first thing on a Monday morning, and it's still, even after many years, feels very, very weird that the French Open starts on a Thursday and it goes runs counter to everything I know to be right in the world. On but a Sunday. On a Sunday. What did I say?
1: Thursday. You're Madrid institutionalised
3: <laughs> already. <laughs> uh, Sunday. Um, but actually, that was the that was the first time I'd really thought. Actually, it is really weird that a Grand Slam just sort of kicks off without much fanfare at 10 a.m. on a Monday morning. That is strange, isn't it? When most people are sat at their desks, probably just hating on the world, thinking, oh, well, not only am I sat at my desk just wishing I was in bed, but I'm also now missing tennis. Mm. I don't know. It's a perspective I'd never thought about before. And I don't know what the solution is because um, dragging out a Grand Slam over three weekends feels too much. And having days off in the in the middle uh, feels like a loss of momentum. But equally, I suddenly think that having a Grand Slam start at 10am on a Monday morning is really, really silly. David. Yeah,
1: no, it's it, it, you're right. We're just so used to it that we don't question it. And yeah, maybe maybe we should be questioning it. Personally, I'm I'm fine with them introducing play on the Sunday for all of those reasons. I I do remember back when I was just a fan, and also in the years since I've worked in the sport, coming to the second Monday and 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 saying all the things you're supposed to say about it being the best day in the tennis and sporting calendar and all this sort of stuff and then getting through it and thinking yeah but it wasn't because I've missed most of it I've I haven't got that many eyes ears senses to be able to properly pick all this stuff up and properly enjoy it it's just it's like channel hopping I'm not watching anything and I don't want to do that so um it, it was always build as more than what it ended up being for me, a bit like Christmas <laughs> um, in terms of uh, you know, all this madness on, on, the, on the one morning. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. They cited the improvement in grass technology as one of the reasons, I think, both why they're doing this and how they can do this now. I think Simon Briggs in his article for The Telegraph pointed out that there are actually a lot of Big financial reasons why this would be coming into effect now they've they've just okay yes they got their insurance payout but they also spent about 65 million buying the lease for the golf club land and they're taking a hit this year on the ticket revenue and an extra day's play with fans attending buying tickets buying food and also all the tv money that would come with an extra day it's it's sort of beneficial for Wimbledon, I think, as well in many ways. Mm. It does make it interesting in terms of the precedent it sets and Wimbledon being prepared to let go of its traditions. I mean, in the last couple of years, we've had the introduction of a fifth set tie of a sorry deciding set tie break, and now mm. play on middle Sunday. It did. I mean, I don't know, but it, that feels like more change in just a couple of years than have happened in several years I, I just wonder whether it would lead to anything down the line
3: mm. next year it'll be they'll be announcing an all fluoro clothing policy <laughs> then we'll wait they they do they do only Ivis, please
1: they do evolve they do update mm. but they take their time and they do it in their own time um and we've seen it well for better and worse, haven't we, um, over the years, whether it be equal prize money and all all the rest of it. But um, I, think, I think this is the right move. Mm.
3: Mm. Well, let's remember this time last year, we were talking about the grass cut season not happening and uh, we were trying to convince ourselves that tennis players playing video games was um, an acceptable replacement for actual tennis. Uh, so...
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right.
3: Uh, Right then, I think that's all of the news rounded up from the week. Um, So we shall move on to the question and answer portion of the show edited and curated by Eli Cronenberg. Thanks to everyone who's sent in questions on email, on social media. Uh, Eli has very helpfully read them all. Uh, he's come up with a few of his own and he's chosen what he considers to be the best uh, of our other listener questions as well. And they're meaty, so I'm going to get right into it. They are intimidatingly meaty. He starts with the question... In light of the recent unveiling and subsequent unraveling of the European Super League which threatened to dismantle the very structure of football what do you believe is currently the biggest threat to tennis as we know it what innovations are you most worried about being implemented Matt
2: Yeah it's a, it's a very interesting question and I like the way he's brought in the European Super League I I saw a lot of tennis people when the European Super League was sort of happening for those 48 hours s- saying that they felt the that was football's equivalent of the new Davis Cup. And I, th- I think Gerard Piquet riled a few tennis fans when he tweeted about the Super League that football is for the fans and it feels like the people who have been most uh, upset by the Davis Cup changes are travelling fans. Um but what I would say to that is, to me, it's not an equivalent. It doesn't feel like the Davis Cup destroys tennis's structure in the in the same way that the European Super League would have done for football. Um, maybe this this question is an opportunity for me to talk about the Ultimate Tennis Showdown and format changes in tennis and. <laughs> What I would say is I I really don't want to be completely opposed to potential format changes to tennis. I think tweaks could be good for the sport and necessary for the sport. There are lots of examples of other sports where format changes have been introduced to sort of fit alongside the traditional game and that's brought a lot of benefits. Um, But I think the biggest threat I see in terms of potential format changes is a is a desire which would probably come from TV to introduce a format which puts tennis under a certain time limit, whether that be one hour or two hours, whatever it is. There's obviously a lot of reasons why that would be desirable, particularly for TV, perhaps for some audiences. But I just think when you set the finish line in a tennis match, you dismantle tennis as we know it to use the Terminology that Eli has used in his question. Um, a very very recent example was that Galan versus Corda match this week oh. in Estoril. That, All right, don't bring that up. <laughs> that David and I got caught up watching. The reason that was an absorbing tennis match at the end was because Galan had to finish it off. He was six one five one up, and the finish line was right there. But he still had to cross it himself, and that element is. I don't know whether it's completely unique to tennis, but it's fundamental to tennis, in my opinion. And the struggle to see him close that match out was what made it so, so exciting and thrilling by the end and gripping, really. So, that for me, you know, any change that imposes a time limit on tennis, which I think is possible with the sort of TV demands these days, that would be a big, big worry for me.
3: Mm. I, I have to say, I came up with the same thing. I, I looked at the the European Super League, and I thought the the vociferousness of the response to that was because the proposals, the specific of, the specifics of the proposal, violated something so fundamental to the sport that it's never even been called into question or examined as. A potential route for change before it's that fundamental to to the sport that that capacity for in 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 football it's the promotion and relegation the jeopardy um that that was the inviolable quality about european football that uh, the european super league proposals put into question or threatened to completely um, run roughshod over. And so I was trying to think, what is it about tennis that would fall into that category? And for me, it's the scoring system. It, it, it I would probably, possibly take what you said, Matt, even further and, and say, you know, any proposal to do what they've done in doubles with uh, no ad scoring, all of that. Some of the things they've tinkered with on the scoring uh, in the next gen finals, first to four, all of that. I just don't think any of it has worked. I think the scoring system is a thing of absolute beauty and it is completely fundamental um, to what makes tennis what a sport that we all love. Uh and, and I would say leave the scoring system alone. I I don't quite extend that to Best of five versus best of three, I more mean the, the micro scoring rather than the macro. As I've expressed before, my ultimate scenario is that we keep best of five, um, but we adapt how often it is played. Best of five for men and women, second week of Islam, slam, best of three, first week of Islam, slam. But I would sacrifice best of five for equality if that were what's what were required. I don't think it is required, but if it were... Um, equality for me is is more important but the 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 micro mechanics of that scoring leave it alone David
1: well I agree with you both um and I think the only other thing I would add because I I don't have a specific concern it's more I'm more concerned aside from what you've already put forward I'm more concerned about anything that can drive the sport. Apart and make it splinter any more than it already is there 's too much splintering going on with with the, with the numerous team events, and I feel the opposite needs to happen. it needs to consolidate it needs men and women to come together more often and more with more direction and so anything that increases infighting disharmony and promotes self-interest for a few from here is I think it's, it's imperative now more than ever in, in the, the remnants for most of us of, of the pandemic and some parts of the world that's proliferating. But I think it's, it's so vital that the sport and it's the people that care about it stick together.
3: Well, David, speaking of consolidation, you've, you've led me on beautifully to Eli's second question. Uh, He asks, you have frequently discussed the need to consolidate the various team competitions, which are often close to identical in format, to create a singular co ed competition that would serve as the World Cup of Tennis. If you were tasked with creating this all important event, what format and structure would you choose? How many teams? What does a tie look like? Group stages or not? uh one event or all year long, etc. He wants detail, does Eli? He does he doesn't just want a wafty general proposal. He wants to drill down into the details. So I want your complete manifesto for a combined team competition. Uh, you can choose who goes first. Oh, David's grinning at me. Off you go, David.
1: Well, I've, I've put the detail in. Whether it all adds up is another matter. <laughs> but, uh, okay, here's here's my my detail. It would be as as described a tennis world cup. It would be a combined mixed event, men and women. It would be co-owned by various stakeholders: the WTA, ITF, ATP, all four slams, the Labor Cup. They'd all have a stake. And they'd all pitch in their own individual team events into it, so that they can come out with the one best one that we all need. So there'd be no more Labor Cup, there'd be no more ATP Cup, Billie Jean King Cup, the Davis Cup. They'd all go in there, and you'd come out with the with the ultimate. It would be played every two years. Um, you would have ties featuring four player teams of two men and two women uh, per nation. Um, you would have, a, in, in the every two years scenario of the finals, it would be a two-week event in one location with 16 teams of, as I say, two men, two women each. And uh, they would, I'm, I'm not 100% sure yet whether I'm going to have a group system or a knockout between between this, whether it's going to be 16-team knockout or whether it's going to be four groups of four and then going through to semifinals and final. So I'm still working that out. Um, but the matches themselves would be played over the best of seven rubbers. You'd have one men's singles, one women's singles. Then you would have one women's doubles, one men's doubles, Right. Um, then you'd go reverse singles, and if it's three all, you'd have mixed doubles to decide the tie. That's that's what we're having um, now. In the non-playing year, like that kid
3: in school that's done extra homework,
2: <laughs> I'm, and I'm feeling like the kid who's got who's got to give their presentation next, and is suddenly <laughs> yeah, realizing I've I'm, not done I'm, the homework.
3: I'm so sorry, Matt. I didn't know this was coming. <laughs> Do Neither continue, David. An hour
2: ago. In
1: the non-playing year, you have. Two rounds of qualifiers, um, 64 nations in total, trying to get into the next year's 16 team finals. So you've got two rounds um, and you just play against a single nation. And you have that type of of matchup that I've just described over the course of what, four or five days. And you do that twice to get into the 16 group. Um, And then Those that are not in the 64 um, for the off year, they play during the finals year themselves in order to try to get into the 64 the following year, so that there is a pathway in order to get into the 16-team finals. And everybody gets behind it, making it more important uh, than all of these little splintered team competitions right now, every two years so that... Those that are guaranteed to be in the finals can have a year off from it and be able to play their singles career without it just being oversaturated. and suddenly you've got this thing, you've got the World cup, you're doing it for your nation. you've got a chance of winning it all that's that's what I want.
3: I'm not sure I would change a single thing about that proposal.
1: I don't know where it all adds up. i mean there are there are some details that I'm not sure you know actually I would. If- and add up as such but but that's the kind I, I would of add in a
3: draft a, a draft which isn't it, it Eli didn't ask for such details but since Matt mentioned the possibility of introducing a draft to tennis I've been really taken by that because a draft is an exciting thing um so some sort of draft ahead of the finals where the captains pick their mm. four players I would I would love that but I I if I had to pick the things that I most wholeheartedly want to shout from the rooftops, my agreement with about what David said, it, it's biannual, um, one location, one big tournament, and mixed, hooray! But I, I like the detail as well, David. I'm, I'm here for it. Does my Matt?
1: seven rubber match work?
3: Seven rubbers is quite a lot. It it does work. Let let's let's hear what Matt's got.
2: Well, mine is very, very similar to David's. I, I completely agree with you, Catherine. And I like David's a lot. An important aspect for me was maintaining some kind of qualifying system to take place in little ties around the world, just as David's got in his off year from the finals, because I've, I've you know, I've been to those events and they are, I think, incredibly important events for those locations. And people feel very strongly that they need to stay in the sport. And I, I agree. Um, I, I would say there's no reason why those ties couldn't be seven rubbers. I think during the actual World Cup, I would perhaps reduce the number of rubbers personally. I would definitely have just a straight knockout, just because for me that's more interesting than groups. 16-team knockout competition sounds great to me. Um and then I, I guess the only other thing is when in the season it would come. And if we're talking, in, you know, real fantasy scheduling land, I would pretty much stop the regular tennis single season as we know it after the U.S. Open in an ideal world. And then October would be team month and that would be the time for the World Cup. And then you could have a proper off season. You know, if there's nothing else going on at the same time, all eyes would be on this big World Cup team event. And I think that would be amazing. But yeah, the system in my head looks very, very similar to David's.
3: Mm. Well, we've solved that. So you're welcome, tennis authorities. There's the blueprint. (laughs) Make it so um next question from Eli is the longevity of players like Serena Williams Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal the exception or the potential new norm is their late 30s success more down to advancements in physical training science or the ability of those specific players to manage their bodies David
1: Uh, I think it is the potential new norm because I think not only are the sports science uh, steps progressing to such that players feel physically that they're able to play for more years and the nutrition and, and etc. Um I also feel that ju- just they're seeing others do it and they are seeing that as what you do. It used to be players, when they hit 30, felt like they'd probably got to retire because... And it, it, I think it becomes psychosomatic. You know, you 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 become thirty. That's what happens. You get physically, you deteriorate. And I think that the players these days just they they've got no real reason to think that because they're seeing all these players who are showing that that's not the case. And so the new norm is to play into your late thirties, and and you can have a longer career. And it certainly seems to be shifting in terms of the life cycle of the career. From the teen years to the the latter years, certainly of the mid thirties i'd be very interested to see, for instance, what happens to someone like Coco Goff when she gets older whether there's any whether she tails off sooner just because she started so early. Um, there are cases of that. The only other thing I would say i'm I'm curious to see is what impact covid has in that I think it's it's reducing the careers of some people who just don't want to live this life or, or don't want to have this as their sporting life once they've had a decade under their belts. I think we're seeing that with with some players, and so that may end up starting a new trend of players just retiring earlier again. Um, so we'll, we'll see. But yeah, I, I think generally speaking, yes, I think it will. It has created a new norm, and it will that will continue for for the foreseeable.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it it probably is a new norm. The best explanation I've ever seen for this. Going to give a nod to Catherine's brother.
3: Oh, you you've stolen my research.
2: Well, I, I'm I'm happy to. I've <laughs> I, I've just remembered it, uh, so I'm happy to <laughs> hand over to you to explain it. But it's if I'm correct, the premise was essentially the top players are getting older over the last 30 or 40 years, con- considerably older. But the if you look at the top 1,000 in tennis, generally that has actually stayed the same. So it's something to do with the top players and maths explanation is the way that wealth has been distributed in tennis so heavily in favour of the top players. Uh-huh. They can afford bigger teams to keep themselves healthier. They can afford to skip tournaments when they don't necessarily need to play and can therefore kind of maybe avoid some injuries and things like that. That that data breakdown that Math did maybe we'll put that in the show notes. Um, mm. Was was a very convincing explanation for me.
3: Mm. Fans of visual data representation will not be disappointed by what we've got for you in this week's show notes. Then, um, because yeah, I mean, I, I should say that it was he wrote this article for his own fun at the end of twenty seventeen. So things have things have changed a little since then but not i don't think the overall landscape is any different now to to how it was in 2017 Um, he says the results are striking while the top 100 men may have been getting older over the past 30 years, the average age of the top 1000 players has barely shifted hovering between 23 and 24. So the aging trend appears only to affect the very top players. He then does similar analysis for the women's game. And the trend is ever so slightly, ever so slightly less stark. um, But, but similar, and he says the disparity between the top and the second tier players is even more striking when you plot the average ages of the top ten. Um, so yeah, and very similar in the uh, in the uh, in the women's game. So I think I think the premise of the question, and it's not, yeah, I, I think this sort of general acceptance that all tennis players are getting older, and it's possible for everyone to play to play later now because of string racket technology etc etc is perhaps not as true as we all accept it to be um and yeah as you say math math goes into some some speculation with data analysis on on why that might be so i probably i I think it will i think it will those exceptional players will shift something in the minds of all tennis players um they won't sort of necessarily assume that their career will be over by age 32. You know, when you're a young person turning pro, you won't sort of think in terms of a 10-year career. Perhaps you'll have a more open mind about what your career might look like. But in reality, whether they've actually changed anything um, palpably for the whole game, I I question whether that's the case. But yeah, we'll, we'll pop that article in the show notes. It's a very, very interesting and knotty, Subject, I think um, the next question it it's it's involves predictions, so oh, excellent. I feel like it sh- it should come with an attached apology, but Eli is putting us in this predict in this position, and we will valiantly go into battle. He says, rank these four players in order of who you think will win a Grand Slam first, if ever. The players are. Alexander Zverev, Yannick Sinner, Irina Sabalenka, and Jen Jennifer Brady.
1: Uh, shall I have a go? Yes, <laughs> yes please. please. Okay.
3: Uh, well, I'm going
1: for Sabalenka first, then Sinner, and Brady and Zverev won't win one.
3: So the only two on the list that have reached Grand Slam finals will be the ones yeah. that don't win them. Correct.
2: Yeah, it it's such an interesting selection of players. I've I've been in, mm. I've been having a headache over this question because to me the only one who feels like a banker as much as you can be to win a major is Sinner.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: But doesn't feel like he's going to win one this year. I'd also be a bit surprised if he won one next year. So... Will he won
1: like one in 4 years, <laughs> I actually We've think- only got one diary note about <laughs> when Alcaraz will really have won the French Open by 2025, April
2: 22nd. Hmm. I th- yeah, I think Sinner probably will win a major within the next four years.
1: Note that damn Catherine.
3: This is a public podcast, David. It's out there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this stays between us, but... <laughs> yeah. At least Cornet style. Um Brady, to me, feels like she's made some big strides. She's reached the final of the last... Sorry, she's lost to the eventual champion at the last two hard-court majors. So it sort of feels like her time is now, in a way, but it just always strikes me that there will be someone better left in the draw, is how I I end up feeling about Jen, Jenny, Jennifer Brady. Um, Sabalenka, I just find it very difficult to see her putting it together for the mm. for the full two weeks. She, and she's got a major problem. She's never even reached a quarterfinal. That's a very specific hurdle she's got to overcome. And Zverev feels like the obvious one who should be first. He's achieved the most. He's the highest ranked. He's uh, been to a final recently. But there are chinks in his game that I'm beginning to wonder that he might not be able to overcome. So I'm probably thinking Sinner. And then the other three won't win one.
3: Yep, I agree with that. I think that's the very cautious answer because if if the other three win one, they'll probably win it sooner than Sinner will. Mm. But the only one I feel co- confident putting in that list is is Sinna. So on has, your that, has that
1: changed with Sabalenka since the start of the year? I'm, I seem to. Recall more optimism a few months ago about Sabalenka, or maybe not about her
3: winning a slam. I am (laughs) optimistic about her. I think she's going to be a big factor. I wouldn't want to have my credibility or any of my money on her winning a slam.
1: Well, I've never worried about credibility.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're running out of time, folks. So we're going to go quick fire on the remaining questions because they're all good, and I want to get them all in. So, quick fire answers, please. None of this showing off about the homework you've done, David. Uh, TB on Twitter asks, can you talk about the camera angle from the upper corner in Barcelona? I thought it was outstanding and showcased the speed of the game versus the rear view. Should it be the new default camera angle when possible? Eli doesn't like it, and that's why he's a particular fan of this question, David. Matt,
1: great, great question. Um, I, I absolutely love it as an occasional. Uh, angle I don't I certainly don't want to see point upon point of it I don't want to see a game full of it I want to see a point every four or five games of it because I think it shows you something that you just cannot see from the normal angles you get to see what the crowd that happened to have that seat are looking at and I really like that
2: yeah a sprinkling in here here and there is is fine for me. I thought the main camera angle in Barcelona was one of the best tennis camera angles I've ever seen. Helped by the fact that it wasn't a great big stand, so it wasn't too high, but it also wasn't really low. It was just sort of low enough to be immersive and to show you the trajectory of the ball, but high enough that you could also see all the lines. I thought it was a, a perfect compromise.
3: Agreed. No notes. Uh, which this is from at Wild On Ion. Wild, no, I think it's
2: Wild Onion.
3: Wild Onion. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, um. Yeah. Move on. Okay. Which <laughs> Which teenager or next gen player would you love to see Andy Murray coach?
2: Eager Fiontech
3: Yeah. Me too. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, he loves her as well.
2: When you talk about, well, I'm, this is based on your experiences, Catherine. When you talk, when you talk to Andy Murray about young players that he's excited about, he's thinking Osaka, Sviantek, mm. Andrescu more than he's thinking Zverev, Rublev, etc. Definitely. And I think that sort of cerebral tennis player that Sviantek is would suit Murray, and she's also. Interested in other things outside of tennis, yet also completely dedicated to tennis. And I think that's that's a very Murray approach as well.
3: Agreed. Uh, I mean, I've yeah. got
1: somebody uh, somebody different, but yours is better than mine.
2: <laughs>
3: so is yours going
1: to be you've... Nick Kyrgios, David? <laughs> no, mine's Shapovalov.
3: Oh. Um, which, because... He I, wouldn't uh, take that I'm, good, I'm
1: David. am s- sorry to say that my mind immediately went to a man, which makes me feel r- really embarrassed now, uh, but it did. Um, and and as soon as you've mentioned Sviantech, that makes far more sense. Uh, Andrescu makes more sense to some degree, although I just feel that she's way too self confident to to need Murray or in, in the way that Sviantek would value that input. Uh, the reason I've gone for Shapovalov is because I it's just curiosity. What could an Andy Murray brain and attitude do with a game like that i'd just love to know i'd Mm -hmm. love to know if if that tennis player what it what is his potential if somebody could unlock it is it just what we're seeing is there no way beyond the barriers that are already there or is there more because it's so exciting it's so spectacular it looks so amazing and yet it's so dispiriting at the moment
3: Mm. I would also throw in, for fun, Caroline Garcia. Not, <laughs> not next-gen anymore, but yeah. I'd love to, him to pick up the phone and go, Caroline, I stitched you right up with my prediction that you're going to be world number one, but I'm now going to pay you back. Can we also give them a time help, machine? Help you get there. Yeah. Oh, that's a, a sad, sad comment uh final question and i mean quick fire on this one multiple people on social media and email asked about reports of the atp looking to stage a masters 1000 on grass thoughts on this
1: well it's i mean obviously i work at queen's have done for many years um but i have to say hand on heart i've heard nothing about that um in terms of something that might be imminently about to happen um what I would say is that for many, many years, they've just been talked about in in the media as and in, amongst fans as, why isn't there a Masters 1000 on grass? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Why is the grass court season so short? These are stories that, that we always talk about. And yeah, there, there have been times, I think, when either people have put two and two together or there might have been some conversations about that really should be a thing that happens and obviously there are two there are a number of good tournaments but there are two real standouts in terms of Queens and Halle yeah, in terms of they've been around for a long time they're strong tournaments why isn't one of them a thousand i mean i think i think there's a few reasons one of which is do either of them need to be a 1000 they both get great crowds great fields I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one, though, that Andrea Gadenzi, the head of the ATP, is the one who, who mentioned it in his interview with Stu Fraser for the Times. So interesting, but not, not heard anything about
2: that imminently happening.
3: Matt, do you have anything quickfire to add?
2: I would say I'm big on swings. And I think in an ideal world, every swing should probably have some kind of 1000 event joint between the men and women so in an ideal world yes i would love some sort of masters 1000 event on grass
3: Mm. yeah i agree i i I think the more you can build the grass swing great but you can't do it as the calendar currently stands you need more time on Mm. grass if the calendar is going to be three weeks in between then the events that we have are completely sufficient but if you can create more of a swing then sure throw in a masters 1000 spice spice it all up uh that is it for our Questions—they were good, weren't they? They were really good. Thank you to Eli mm. and everybody uh, that submitted questions on social media and on email. Uh, we are we are very uh, appreciative of the input. We always get good questions. We're very grateful for that. Um, some housekeeping: Max is our mascot. Max is a lovely cat in New Zealand. Uh, details of Max went out in our newsletter, which you've missed. If you don't want to miss the boat on future mascots photos, then subscribe to our newsletter. And for multiple other reasons, it's great. It's got Matt stat. It's got all of our shoddy, shoddy predictions. Uh, Zeus, though, we are still alive this week with Casper Rude. Uh, it would bring us much glee if Casper Rude mm. could come through for us. David has let Rogue down badly, as documented mm. earlier in the podcast. Matt, who are you uh, aiming to please?
2: Scoutor Mouser and I have Davidovich Fakina this week, who is into the quarterfinals, taking out uh, Jeremy Shardy yesterday. I saw.
3: Ah, how smug he Friend of (laughs) of the podcast, Jeremy Shardy, or certainly sort of friend of my dad. I feel like I'd have should have a separate text group with my dad entitled "The Plight of Jeremy Shardy." I would read that.
1: That's Jeremy Shardy (laughs) won today. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) Um, Chris Albert Lee is our executive producer. He's a top bloke. Uh, Billie Jean King is Billie Jean's sponsor for the year. She's not with me. She's with my brother refusing to eat anything but roasted meats. Uh, So it's pleasing that she's trying it on with my brother uh, just as much as she is with me. He made her a liver paste omelette this morning and uh, she just licked off the liver paste and... (laughs) Looked disdainfully at the remaining omelette. So uh, that's how she rolls. She is nothing if not discerning. Matt, who are our shout outs for? Peter Swenson. Oh, right, Peter, it, it's a Swedish. <laughs> Matt, Matt doesn't have the answers to any of our questions. We, we must All the letters that. of
2: Sweden are in his surname.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. Great. Hello to possibly Swedish Peter. Thank you for your support. <laughs> uh,
2: Jeremy Demmer.
3: Oh, hello. Is is,
1: Pete, is Peter Swedish? What?
2: I'm not sure what's just happened here. <laughs>
1: what? Is he Swedish? What was his first name? <laughs> Jeremy. Oh, Jeremy. Sorry, Jeremy. I'm I'm a bit behind. <laughs> is Jeremy Swedish? <laughs>
3: you okay david
1: well you might be swedish i'm curious
3: <laughs> hello jeremy i was gonna go with shares the name of jeremy shardy but you you went in a different direction david <laughs> and let's move on quickly <laughs> thank you jeremy for your support sorry that your shout out was so weird <laughs>
2: <laughs> and the final one today is barbara backer number 598
3: just barbara I yeah, love maybe. that That's cool. uh, Barbara with 598 tattooed about her person somewhere. Cause that's, that's how it works. If you only go with your first name,
1: might be Swedish as well. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it might be a trio of Swedes <laughs> this week. <laughs> we might never know. Uh, David, go and get some rest. <laughs> see a doctor, something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this Slightly Bizarre Tennis Podcast subscribe to the newsletter, tell your friends uh, leave us an Apple Podcast review, keep listening hope you're enjoying it, we will be back on Monday when we'll be talking about Madrid, we'll be speaking to you then